we are, because it's Christmas, we're going to kind of lean into the season here this year and uh, do things a little different. We're going to step outside of the book of Acts. If you've been following us last couple of months, we have been sort of marching our way through the book of Acts. It's been a fun journey, and we will pick that back up. Um, we left off in 17 last week. Uh, Elder Lynn did an awesome job of bringing the word and, um, to us. And uh, we'll pick that back up in January, okay? We're going to do things a little different next couple of weeks. Um, we are going to be spending time reflecting on the real joy and real comfort that is possible in this life only because God came near. God came to us. And so as we reflect on the reality of the, the glory of the incarnation... God drawing near, and the real, we're going to consider together as a church the real difference that that truth makes in our life. We're going to be looking at a variety of passages over the course of the next couple of weeks. And just as a heads up, some of you kind of float occasionally. You might be at E. Some weeks you might attend Central for whatever reason, and that's okay. But it's going to be a little different because the passage that's being preached this week at Central is not the passage I'm preaching this week. So we're doing this intentionally, um, and we're going to be rotating some preachers around here. So Pastor Mark, I believe there's going to be a week where Pastor Mark is here um, preaching one of the texts. And I'll preach this message at Central in a couple of weeks. I don't even know when, but it'll likely happen. So just as a heads up, if you find yourself sitting at Central a few weeks from today, thinking to yourself, this sounds awfully familiar, um, there's good reason for that. It probably will be familiar, all right? So the passage we're going to be looking at today is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. You'll be greatly helped. I think the words are going to be on the screen, but you'll be greatly helped if you're looking at it this morning. Grab your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Now, I said before that we're looking at some passages that are associated with the Christmas, the Advent season. Um, many of the passages will be familiar, and there'll be passages that you would, you would likely already say, that's a Christmas passage. Some of them will be different ones, ones that maybe you would not normally associate with the Christmas season. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 have in the last couple of weeks become my, some of my favorite Christmas verses. It's glorious. It's really amazing. And the truth that is disclosed in these verses makes a real difference for our life. Let's look at the word together and I'll pray for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wow. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning, just as it comes to us. Lord, we recognize that your spirit is here, that he is active, he is in this place. And we ask right now that as we look at these two glorious verses, Father, might you 
Guide us in your truth. Use me, Lord. Speak now through me. I need you. I trust you, Lord. I pray that you would use these words or that you would take them, these words that are your words that we believe to be eternal and true, and would you simply write them on our hearts? And in doing so, form us into the people that you have made us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, growing up, I had some fears. Maybe you did too. Spiders, bugs of virtually any kind, no thanks, terrified. Clowns, clowns, afraid of clowns. What I've noticed is I've gotten older over the years. Maybe you can relate. You're getting older over the years as well. Uh, my fears have changed. A couple years ago, I found myself standing on a ladder painting my house. And as I went up with every step, I became less and less confident that my legs were actually working. <laughs> and the ladder began to shake. And I thought to myself, I'm not afraid of heights. Well, now as a 40-year-old Doug Fern, I am afraid of heights. Fear, sort of just a part of living. Maybe you can relate. It's a part of living. It's a part of life. Truth is, we are a fearful people. Life is sacred. It's fragile. And as long as there is danger or a threat of harm to our life or the lives of those whom we love, there's fear. But is this the way it has to be? Is there any escape from this bondage? Is it possible to not fear death? One of my favorite poets, Wendell Berry, reflecting on the reality of death, wrote this. Do not live for death. Pay it no fear or wonder. This is the firmest law of the truest faith. Death is the dew that wets the grass in the early morning dark. It is God's entirely. Withdraw your, your fatal homage and live. Withdraw your fatal homage and live. Doesn't that sound nice? Is it possible though? Is it really possible? Paying death no fear. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 declares boldly and assuredly, yes, there is a way to pay fear of death no homage and to simply get on with living. Today, what we'll discover as we look at these texts and look at these verses is that because of Christmas, we can know freedom from the fear of death and really live. That's what the author of Hebrews is declaring in these words. Not just the freedom that is marked only during a specific season of the year, but a freedom that should characterize and define the very life that we live. 
We can walk through this world no matter what the devil has to throw at us and we can do so fearlessly. First thing I wanna point out about the text, two simple verses. They're pretty straightforward. The first thing I want us to consider is the essence or the definition of Christmas. What is its essence? Like I said, the text is pretty straightforward if you're looking at it. There's, There's a main clause, the first half we see of it. We see the main clause in the first half of verse 14, and it's followed by two purpose clauses. Let's look at the main clause together first. It says that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, because we are human, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Because we are human, the son became human. The son of God became a man. It's raw language that the author here implores. Doesn't just say that he had a body and became like a man. It says he took on flesh and blood. Real human in every way. Now this is a, in Christianity, this is a core theological truth that defines us as a people. Jesus had to become human so that he could represent us, humans. He he became a human so that he could represent humans. Just two things as we consider the incarnation that I wanna point out. The first is, is I want us to consider just how the incarnation shows us how committed God is to keeping his word. Let me say it again. The story of Christmas reveals to us and reminds us precisely how committed God is to keeping his word. The very first verses of this book, Hebrews chapter one, one and two says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. God's plan has always been from the beginning to make a people for himself, a people who would enjoy the fullness of his presence and the blessing that comes along with it. In the Old Testament, if you were to trace the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament, you would see that it's a, it's a story of God calling a people to himself. And while those people enjoyed his blessing, they continually turned their back to God. They rejected him. They gave themselves to worship of other gods, false gods. Over and over and over again, this was the pattern, yet God remained faithful even when they weren't. The Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi, and just like we sort of got done sort of rehearsing, there's 400 years of silence. Now, I suspect if I was alive during that time, knowing the pattern of my People, knowing the darkness of my own heart and the reality of my sin, I might be, like you, tempted to think 
maybe that's it. Maybe God had enough. Maybe, just maybe, God has closed up shop and moved along. But Jesus breaking into the world as a human being reminds us that God is faithful and did just as he said he would. He provided a rescuer, a deliverer. That in these last days, God was speaking not through the prophets as of old, but now he was speaking through his son. So, as his people, we should be able to take God at his word. The incarnation, Christmas reminds us that God is faithful to his word. He will do just as he says. And secondly, we're reminded as we consider the way it unfolds, just how wonderfully he shows us this. God does not remain aloof or disinterested. He does not look at us in our mess and think to himself, no thanks, I'd love to help them, but I'm just gonna sort of keep a distance from their mess. Maybe develop some sort of app that will just sort of fix everything. Not at all. Rather, he enters into our mess. He takes on our reality. Reflecting on the, really the wonder of the incarnation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, and that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. It's the glory, it's the beauty of his great plan taking on flesh and blood, becoming a human like us, entering into our mess. He condescends into our reality. This is so different than how we operate. Jose Mujica was the former president of the country of Uruguay. I cannot speak to his policies or his politics because that's, his policies and politics are not what made a reputation for him. Rather, in a world where it is common, a common complaint leveled against politicians whose lifestyles are far removed from their constituents, this president was known as the world's poorest president. The world's poorest president. He refused the luxurious home provided for, that the state provided for the president. Instead, he lived in his wife's family's ramshackle of a farmhouse. He worked the land. If you were to visit him, you would likely see laundry hanging in the yard. Though he was paid $12,000 a month, he gave away 90% of his salary to charity. He was known as the world's poorest president. That was his reputation. See, stories like this, they tend to stand out because they're so unlike how we normally operate. They're so unusual. In a world that primarily values upward mobility and sort of climbing the ladder, 
He stands out. Well, the God of the universe is a God who instead, unlike us, values downward mobility. He came down to us. He made himself lowly with us, lived as us, among us, with us. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The incarnation, as we reflect on it in this season, is wonderful. And it has so many implications that are vast and that are meaningful for how we respond to God, for how we treat and live among one another, how we view our own life. Tremendous implications. And the prayer for this morning is that those reality, that reality would never grow stale. That the sort of magic of Christmas season would never be hard to find. Why? Because God became a human like you and me. Now, secondly, that's the sort of the essence of Christmas. Secondly, the verse tells us about the accomplishment of Christmas. What did this great plan accomplish? God becoming man, taking on flesh and blood. What did it accomplish? Well, if you look at the passage, you'll see there that it says in verse 14, it's a word that I have circled in my Bible, that, or so that. God became human like us, for a purpose, so that, and really, there's two, two purpose clauses. The first, it says, and you can remember these simply by D's, destroyed and delivered. First thing, he destroys the one who has the power over death. Jesus coming to earth, touching down and on this planet, destroys the one who has the power over death. That's why he did it. Now, saying that Satan has the power over death is not to suggest that he has the ultimate power over it. The, the Bible clearly teaches that it is God who gives life and it is God who takes it away. New Testament scholar Michael Kroger said this, to say he has the power over death rather is to say that he influences the thing that causes death. To say that the devil has the power over death is to say that he has the ability to influence that which brings death about. Death is the consequence of our rebellion against God for sort of turning our nose up and our back to God, the creator of the universe. It is the penalty for our sin, which means the only way to defeat death is to defeat sin. To try and deal with the penalty without dealing with the cause would be of no use at all. That's why Jesus came. To square up with sin itself. Galatians, Paul says in chapter one, verse four, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This is why he came, to seek and save the lost. Another way of saying this is that when Jesus came to earth, Satan got what he had coming. 
If you remember the promise that God gave all the way back in Genesis chapter three of 15 when he was cursing the devil after the fall, promising victory would be his. He said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Jesus came, death no longer became a threat. While we die physically, death doesn't master us because those who are in Christ can live again in him. The promise that, G that God made to the serpent became a reality. You can take him for his word at that first Christmas morning. Secondly, doesn't just destroy the one who has the power over death. He also delivers us, it says, from slavery to the fear of death. Now, death is real. Many of us know that all too well. Death is real. And it's unjust, and it's cruel, and it's a ravenous enemy. To be reminded of that reality, just look at the 20th century which kind of goes on the history books as the most murderous century recorded in history. Wars, genocides, reigns of terror, human instigated ecological catastrophes extinguished nearly 200 million lives. Death. Just in our contemporary age, you think of threats of death. Last couple of years from COVID, mass shootings, crime all over the headlines. We are reminded of the reality of death. Death is real. It's real. And the Bible makes it very clear that mankind has good reason to be afraid. Ray Ortland is helpful as he says that death is not just another phase in the circle of life. Death is an ending that's followed by a reckoning. The prospect of death should cause us to fear ultimately in what happens after death. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author reminds us, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, you can take it to the bank, it's going to happen. And as certain as that is, so after that comes judgment. Comes judgment. See, Church, the reality is you and I, we will stand before God. We will report in. And how can we, every one of us, knowing that reality is coming, should be asking, how can we endure the scrutiny of God? On our own, we can't. It's an impossibility. Our record won't satisfy his demands. That's why he needed to send another. One like us who shared in flesh and blood, who lived, who suffered, and who died. But unlike us, whose record was without blemish, no stain of sin, a life completely free from sin. While death is real, our text reminds us this morning that as Marilyn Robinson has stated, the fear of death is not a Christian habit of mind. How can that be? Our text tells us. Think of Psalm 23, even though this, this verse makes me think of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though our life is marked by death, it's an inevitability. 
I will fear no evil. The next words in that Psalm are key. For you are with me. For you, God, are with me. God's presence with his people. This is the power that God unleashes on us. He offers his presence to us. This is the promise that we get that we can, because we, we enjoy his presence, the fear of death no longer has to mark us as a people. It's the same promise that Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a promise that to this very day, though, death is lurking around any corner. We don't know which one. God's presence is with us. And as long as he's with us, though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we should fear no evil because he is with us. He's come near God has given himself to us and made a way for us to be with him forever. And we need, we need not fear death because when we feel its pangs at that very moment, we will be with Christ. Seeing his glory, enjoying his presence and feeling finally at home. And brothers and sisters, that's what Christmas is all about. If you are in Christ, the fear of death should not be for you a habit of mind. Third, and perhaps most importantly, what's the strategy? This, this text tells us as glorious as that promise and that truth is, as wonderful as that invitation is that he extends to us, that you no longer have to be in bondage, in slavery to the fear of death. Perhaps the most important thing in this text is the, the revelation or the speaking to of the strategy, the, the means by which he accomplishes this. The, the destruction of the evil one who has the power of death and delivering us from the fear of death. What is the strategy? We'll look at the middle of verse 14. Two words in the English, three in the Greek. Tell us precisely how Jesus would accomplish this on our behalf. What is this grand strategy? Yes, he comes to earth, but how does he pull it off? Look at verse 14. Through death. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery through death. That's his grand plan that Jesus would come to this earth, take on share in flesh and blood like you and me and die. The incarnation is the key to all of this. And what's so staggering about this reality is that we see the vulnerability of Jesus ultimately is what destroyed the power of Satan. I'll say that once again. The vulnerability, Jesus at his most vulnerable state, destroyed the power of the devil. His power is so great, he won the battle of the ages by coming down in our form, taking on the fragility of human flesh and blood, becoming weak, 
susceptible to abuse, mockery, pain, grief, sadness, loss. Can you imagine Satan seeing this played out? Watching what is happening. Likely, this is not in the Bible, I'm just assuming. I'm taking a guess. I can imagine he was likely licking his chops. Thinking to himself, this is my chance. Boy, was he wrong. Because Jesus, in his most vulnerable state, is no match for the devil. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. Jesus embraced death by embracing death, taking it into himself. This was his strategy. Through death, not into death. And that was that. But it says through death. He went through death and came out the other side more alive than ever. So you and I can by his grace share in that same life. God defeats Satan through the suffering of his son. Of the way New Testament commentator H.A. Ironside says, the Lord himself becomes our champion. He marches as our David to destroy the great Goliath who has terrorized the world since the fall in Genesis 3. And the cross was for Christ a valley of Elah where he met our cruel foe and put an end to his authority over the souls of all who believe in the gospel. See, Jesus using the cross to defeat Satan is akin to David standing before Goliath, laying on the ground and taking his sword out of his sheath and putting an end to it with his own weapon. Jesus destroyed death by dying. I hope that truth never gets old. This past week, a couple of nights ago, I was putting our youngest, Noelle, to bed, and we were, she was just sort of using some of her regular tactics of delay, all right, and hoping that maybe, which, I mean, they're effective occasionally. Dad or mom will fall asleep before she will, right? And so it just it happens. So wanted to read some books, and one book turned into two books, and two books turned into three books, and you know how it goes. And uh, sort of finished with uh, the children's storybook Bible. I don't know if you have it, but uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, we were reading through this, and she wanted to read stories about Jesus. And uh, I said, yes, we read, we read a few. And then last one she asked was to read about the story of, of Jesus and the cross. And so I said, okay, let's, let's do that. It sounds great. I mean, how do you say no to that one? I mean, she, I, she was really putting it on thick. Like, can we pray, Dad? Can we, you know, read the Bible? I mean, she's just really going all out. And uh, we're reading it. And I'm going to actually read one of the pages because as we were reading it, I, I don't think I had read this particular story for a while from this book. And it, it had a way of just, just reading it that just, there was a moment sitting on the couch where I felt like I was going to cry. And I, I could sense that she felt the same. Just, it was really sad. I'm going to read it to you real quick, okay? 
I don't know if it'll be quick or not. I'm just going to read it, all right? No promises on that. It says, they failed, or sorry, they nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they yelled. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl and stilled the storm and fed the 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was his love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time, and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. The page just struck me and how deeply sad it was. And I could feel just that idea of a boy calling out to his dad in silence. I could look down at Noelle and I saw her face and I could sense she too was sad. And, and she looked up at me and she said, Papa, why would God do that? Why would he do that? And it looked like she was on the verge of tears. And my simple response was, because God loves you. And for you to be with him, Jesus had to die. And as soon as I said those words, her whole demeanor changed. A smile spread across her face as if she forgot. Oh, that's right. And then she looked back up at me and she said, and you know what? He loves you too. I said, absolutely. Absolutely. It was through death of this precious gift that you and I can have fellowship, communion, relationship with the one true God. And Christmas time is so special because it reminds us that God became one of us. He entered into our pain total mess of a world. He lived the perfect life that you and I can't live. He suffered the atoning death that we should have died to offer an eternity with him that we don't deserve. It's a wonderful time.